Chapter 9 of A Marriage at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arup Sen. A Marriage at Sea by W. Clark Russell. We are much observed. Our lunch consisted of cold fowl and ham and champagne, good enough meat and drink, one should say, for the sea, and almost good enough, one might add, for a pair of lovesick fugitives. "'How is your appetite, my darling?' said I. "'I think I can eat a little of that cold chicken.' "'This is very handsome treatment, Grace. Upon my word, if the captain preserves this sort of behaviour, I do not believe we shall be in a great hurry to quit this ship. Is not she a noble vessel? exclaimed Grace, rolling her eyes over the saloon, after the poor little Spitfire's cabin. And how different is this motion! It soothes me after the horrid tumbling of the last two days. This is a very extraordinary adventure, said I, eating and drinking with a relish and an appetite not little heightened by observing that Grace was making a very good meal. It may not end so soon as we hope, either. First of all, we have to fall in with a homeward-bound ship. Then she has to receive us. Then she has to arrive in the channel and transfer us to a tug or a smack or anything else which may be willing to put us ashore and there is always the chance of her not falling in with such a craft as we want, until she is high as the fallens, past Boulogne, in short. But no matter, my own. We are together, and that is everything. She took a sip of champagne that the steward had filled her glass with, and said in a musing voice, What will the people in this ship think of me? What they may think need not trouble us, said I. I told Captain Parsons that we were engaged to be married. Is there anything very extraordinary in a young fellow taking the girl he is engaged to out for a sail in his yacht, and being blown away, and nearly wrecked by a heavy gale of wind? Oh, but they will know better, she exclaimed with a pout. Well, I forgot. It is true that I told the captain we sailed from Boulogne. "'But how is he to know your people don't live there?' "'It will soon be whispered about that I have eloped with you, Herbert,' she exclaimed. "'Who's to know the truth if it isn't divulged, my pet?' said I. "'But it is divulged,' she answered. "'I stared at her. She eyed me wistfully as she continued. "'I told Mrs. Barstow the story.' I am not ashamed of my conduct, and I ought not to feel ashamed of the truth being known. There was logic and heroism in this closing sentence, though it did not strictly correspond with the expression she had just now let fall as to what the people would think. I surveyed her silently, and after a little exclaimed, You are in the right. Let the truth be known. I shall give the skipper the whole yarn, that there may be no misunderstanding. For, after all, we may have to stick to this ship for some days, and it would be very unpleasant to find ourselves misjudged. I gazed as I spoke through the windows of the saloon or cuddy front, 
which overlooked the main deck, where a number of steerage passengers were standing in groups. The ship was before the wind. The great main course was hauled up to its yard, and I could see as far as the forecastle, with a fragment of bowsprit showing under the white arch of the foresail. Some sailors in coloured apparel were hauling upon a rope hard by the foremast. A gleam of misty sunshine was pouring full upon the window-framed picture, and crowded it with rich oceanic tints softened by the ruled and swaying shadows of the rigging. An extraordinary thought flashed into my head. "'By Jove! Grace! I wonder if there's a parson on board. Why do you wonder?' If there is a parson on board, he might be able to marry us. She coloured, smiled, and looked grave, all in a breath. A ship is not a church, said she most demurely. No, I answered, but a parson's a parson wherever he is. He carries with him the same appetite, the same clothes, the same powers no matter whither his steps conduct him. She shook her head, smiling, but her blush had faded, nor could her smile disguise a look of alarm in her eyes. My darling, said I, surely if there should be a clergyman on board, you will not object to his marrying us. It would end all our troubles, anxieties, misgivings, thrust Lady Amelia out of the question altogether save us from a tedious spell of waiting ashore. "'But the objections which hold good on shore hold good here,' said she, with her face averted. "'No, I can't see it,' said I, talking so noisily out of the enthusiasm of the notion had raised in me, that she looked round to say hush, and then turned her head again. "'There must be a difference,' said I, sobering my voice, between the marriage ceremony as performed on sea and on shore. The burial service is different, and you will find the other is so too. There is too much horizon at sea, too much distance to talk of consent. Guardians and parents are too far off. As to bands, who's going to say no on board a vessel? I cannot imagine that it would be a proper wedding, said she, shaking her head. Do you mean in the sense of its being valid, my sweet? Yes, she whispered. But you don't see that a parson's a parson everywhere, whom God hath joined. The steward entered the saloon at that moment. I called to him and said politely, Have you many passengers, steward? Aye, sir, too many, he answered. The steerage is pretty nigh chock-a-block. Saloon passengers, I mean. Every berth's a occupied, sir. What sort of people are they? Do you know? Any swells among them? That depends on how they're viewed, he answered with a cautious look round a slow smile. If by themselves they're all swells, if by others, why... I thought perhaps you might have had something in the colonial bishopric way. No, sir, there is nothing in that way aboard. Plenty as needs it, I dare say. 
the language of them steerage chaps is something to turn the black hairs of a monkey white talk of the vulgarity of sailors the glances of this steward were dry and shrewd and his smile slow and knowing i chose therefore to ask him no more questions but then substantially he had told me what i wanted to gather and secretly i felt as much mortified and disappointed as though for days past i had been thinking of nothing else than finding a parson on board ship at sea and being married to grace by him a little later on mrs barstow came into the saloon and asked grace to accompany her on deck my sweetheart put on her hat and jacket and the three of us went on to the poop my first look was for a ship and i spied off the starboard bow a square of orange-coloured canvas but the vessel was going our way and was therefore of no use to us the ocean swept in a blank circle to that solitary point of sun-coloured sail but it was fine weather at last whilst we were seated at lunch the breeze had freshened and the sky cleared the swell left by the gale had sensibly flattened within the past hour and the sea was trembling and filled with the life of crisp green wrinkles running over the light folds which flowed pleasantly out of the north the mistiness was gone from the sunshine the light was brilliant and warm and coloured the atmosphere with a delicate tinge of yellow though the luminary was yet high in the heavens the clouds hung in rolls of cream-like vapour making the noblest and most stately prospect of the sky that could be imagined as they moved slowly over the mastheads in the direction in which we steered i had never been aboard a full-rigged ship before that is to say at sea and under canvas and on quitting the companionway i stood for some moments heedless of all things in my admiration of the beautiful in truth i may say the royal picture i witnessed from deck to truck rose three spires of canvas sail upon sail of milky softness swelling one above another the planks of the poop deck were as white as holy stoning could make them with a glitter as of dried salt everywhere and the shadows of the people and of the rigging swaying with the heave of the fabric lay like sketches wrought in pale violet ink there was a frequent flash of glass there were star-like glories in the polished brass and there was an odd farmyard smell of hay in the air with the bleating of sheep forward and a noise of cocks and hens a voyage in such a ship as this mrs barstow said i should make the most delightful trip of a person's life it is better than yachting said grace softly a voyage soon grows tiresome remarked mrs barstow miss bellasis i trust you will share my cabin whilst you remain with us you are exceedingly kind said grace others of the passengers now approached and i observed a general effort of kindness and politeness 
The ladies gathered about Grace, and the gentlemen about me, and the time slipped by whilst I related my adventures and listened to their experiences of the weather in the channel and such matters. It was strange, however, to feel that every hour that passed was widening our distance from home. I never for an instant regretted my determination to quit the yacht. Yet, even at this early time of our being aboard the Carthusian, I was disquieted by a sense of mild dismay when I ran my eye over the ship and marked her sliding and curtsying steadily forwards to the impulse of her wide and gleaming pinions and reflected that this sort of thing might go on for days and perhaps for weeks, that we might arrive at the equator perhaps at the latitude of the Cape of Good Hope without meeting with a vessel to serve our turn. All the wardrobe that Grace and I possessed we stood in. Small conveniences we should be able to borrow, but what on earth were we to do without a change of dress or linen? A voyage halfway round the world was indeed a new and quite unconsidered detail of our elopement. From Boulogne to Mount's Bay was, I had often thought, whilst making my plans, too far by several leagues of water. But what, if in defence of the keenest lookout for ships, we should be carried to New Zealand? Could we get married there? Did the colonials impose the restrictions of the old home upon the nuptials of a couple? Should we have to wait for Aunt Amelia's sanction? How long would it take for her ladyship to receive a letter from, say, Otago? and for us to get her reply. Well, in talking, and in thinking, and in walking, and in looking, that first afternoon passed, and at half-past five o'clock we went to dinner. I had had a short chat with Captain Parsons, and from him had learnt that there was no parson on board though I flattered myself that I had put the question in such a way as not to excite his brine-seasoned mind the faintest suspicion of the meaning of my curiosity. I had also given him to understand that I was a young gentleman of substance, and begged him to believe that any cost Grace and I might put the ship to should be repaid with interest to her owners. This enabled me to take my seat at the table with an easy conscience. For though there can be no doubt as to the humanity and hospitality of the British shipmaster, the British ship owner, on the other hand, I have always heard spoken of as a person eminent for thrift and economy, as is made manifest by the slenderness of the crew he ships, the unsavouriness of the provisions he supplies them with, and the very small wages he gives to his captains and mates. It was impossible for me to find myself seated with Grace at my side at that cheerful, hospitable, sparkling sea-dinner-table, without acutely realising the difference betwixt this time and yesterday. Some ten or twelve persons sat down, but there was room for another dozen which I believe about completed the number of saloon passengers the Carthusian carried. Captain Parsons, 
with a countenance varnished as from the recent employment of soap, was at the head of the table with Mrs. Barstow on his right, and I observed that they frequently conversed whilst they often directed their eyes at Grace and me. The setting sun shone upon the skylight, and gleamed in ruby prisms and crystals in the glass about the table. It was a warm and cheerful picture. The forward windows in the saloon framed a part of the ship, a glimpse of curved white canvas, a fragment of the galley and the long coat, the steps leading to the forecastle, coils of gear spinning upon pins, the soft blue afternoon sky of the fine weather that had come at last shone betwixt the squares of the ratlines and floated in the tender liquid atmosphere under the arch of the sails. You could see a number of the steerage passengers pacing the main deck, smoking and arguing, a gentle shaling noise of the waters broken by the passage of the vessel, seethed in the ear like a light passing attack of deafness in the intervals of silence at the table. The chief officer, the scotch-faced man I have before written of, sat at the foot of the table, slowly and soberly eating. "'It would be strange, sir,' said I, addressing him, "'if we do not hereabout speedily fall in with something homeward-bound.' "'I would, sir,' he answered with a broad Scotch accent. "'Yet not so strange, Mr. McCosh,' said a passenger sitting opposite to me, "'if you come to consider how wide the sea is here.' "'Well, perhaps not so strange either.' said Mr. McCosh, in his sawdusty voice, with his mouth full. "'Should you pass a steamer at night?' said I. "'Would you stop to hail her?' He reflected, and then said he, "'Thought not.' "'Then our opportunities for getting home must be limited to daylight?' said I. This seemed too obvious to him, I suppose, to need a response. "'Are you in a great hurry, Mr. Barclay, to get home?' exclaimed a passenger, with a slight cast in his eye that gave a turn of humour to his face. "'Why, yes,' I answered, with a glance at Grace, who was eating quietly at my side, seldom looking up, though she was as much stared at, even after all these hours, as decent manners would permit. "'You will please remember that we are without luggage.' Eh, but that is to be managed, I think. There are many of us here of both sexes, continued the gentleman with the cast in his eye, sending a squint along the row of people on either side of the table. You should see New Zealand, sir. The country abounds with fine and noble prospects. And I do not think, he added with a smile, that you will find occasion to complain of a want of hospitality. "'I am greatly obliged,' said I, giving him a bow. "'But New Zealand is a little distant for the moment.' The subject of New Zealand was now, however, started, and the conversation on its harbours, revenue, political parties, debts, prospects, and the like, was exceedingly animated, and lasted pretty nearly through the dinner. Though Grace and I were seated at the foremost end of the table, removed nearly by the whole length of it from the captain, 
I was sensible that this talk to those near him mainly concerned us. He had, as I have said, Mrs. Barstow on one hand, and on the other sat the lady with the thin lips and the sausage curls. I would notice him turn first to one, then to the other, his round sea-coloured face broadened by an arch-knowing smile. Then Mrs. Barstow would look at us. Then the lady with the thin lips would stretch her neck to take a peep down the line in which we sat. Others would also look, smirk a bit, and address themselves with amused faces in a low voice to Captain Parsons. All this was not so marked as to be offensive or even embarrassing, but it was a very noticeable thing, and I whispered to Grace that we seemed to form the sole theme of conversation at the captain's end. "'What can they be talking about?' said I. "'I hope they are not planning to carry us to New Zealand.' "'You would not permit it,' she exclaimed, giving me an eager, alarmed look. "'No,' said I. "'It was too far off. "'Were it Madeira now, "'it may come to Madeira yet, "'but the pity of it is, my sweet,' said I, "'low in her ear, "'we are not married. "'Otherwise we might call this trip our honeymoon, "'and make a really big thing of it "'by going the whole way to New Zealand.' "'She coloured and was silent, "'afraid, I think, of my being overheard.' my spirits were now as good as they were yesterday, wretched, and whenever I felt happy I had a trick of talking rather loud. When dinner was over we went on deck. Mrs. Barstow and the thin-lipped lady carried off Grace for a stroll up and down the planks, and I joined a few of the gentlemen passengers on the quarter-deck to smoke a cigar one of them gave me. There was a fine breeze out of the east, and the ship, with yards nearly square, was sliding and rolling stately along her course at some six or seven miles in the hour. The west was flushed with red, but a few stars were trembling in the airy dimness of the evening blue over the stern, and in the south was the young moon, a pale curl, but gathering from the clearness of the atmosphere a promise of radiance enough later on to touch the sea with silver under it and fling a gleam of her own upon our soaring sails i had almost finished my cigar two bells seven o'clock had not long been struck when one of the stewards came out of the saloon and approaching me exclaimed captain parsons compliments sir and he'll be glad to see you in his cabin if you can spare him a few minutes. With pleasure, I answered, flinging the end of my cigar overboard, instantly concluding that he wished to see me privately to arrange about terms and accommodation whilst Grace and I remained with him. End of We Are Much Observed